listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. One of the lines that keeps popping up in my head for some reason today was Spencer Tracy was asked, you know, how is it that we really are able to become great actors? What makes a great actor? And in uh, his typical way, he said, know your lines and don't bump into the furniture. Such simplicity to that. And meditative work is much the same way. Breathe in, breathe out, repeat as necessary, stay still, be quiet, do it again and again and again and again and again. And what gets revealed in this practice is something pretty profound, a recognition that we are all connected with all things. And it's not just that we can intellectualize it, it's that it falls deeply into a spaciousness within. And then that spaciousness within gets recognized. We start seeing that it's spacious, it's open, it's empty, yet paradoxically full. As I discussed last week, we start seeing that there's this interesting dichotomy of experience. Where on the one hand, we recognize that in this open field, there is total freedom. There is total choice. And we can also see that there's total fulfillment all at once. there really isn't anything getting in our way except our own tendency to cling, to grasp. And so, knowing our lines and not bumping into the furniture is just... uh, Simplicity and elegance, uh, you know, describing such a uh, beautiful art form as acting. Similarly, in meditation, we can describe that as being quiet, sitting still, paying attention. And in doing so, once we start seeing this freedom, once we start feeling this total fulfillment, there's this compulsion to do no harm. To do no harm to self or other. And it's not just about being nice. It's about coming at the world from a very, very deep, deep place of honor. Recognizing the sacred within all people. Recognizing the sacred within all things. We don't have to work at it. It just kind of happens. Even 
individuals or, or uh, uh, groups that we consider to be enemies. Suddenly we start having this strength, this courage to be able to look at the world from where they stand. And this then elicits a compassion out of this wisdom that we are all connected. A compassion arises. This wisdom sutured with this compassion actually gives us this opportunity to embody an awakening, to embody a truth, to embody a fully natural state. It doesn't have to work at not doing harm. It just doesn't do harm. And this gets scary. (laughs) In fact, much of the stuff that we tend to rely on in our day-to-day is to keep us from getting scared. Maybe it's our personalities. Or maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's our tribe. Anything we identify with is usually used by the psyche to keep awakening at bay. Because facing what we really are is so beautiful that it annihilates much of who and what we've always thought we are. And I know I kind of hit hard with this kind of this end of the teaching because you've got to have guts to go in it from that angle. <laughs> You're going, it's like, uh, I, I've, I've equated it to this before, I believe, and if I haven't, I should have. Um, I, uh, I, I had the good fortune of being taught by a guy named Stephen Ambrose at Cal. And he was a historian, and he uh, wrote Citizen Soldier. He wrote Lewis and Clark. He wrote just this, you know, the, the quintessential book books, I should say, on Eisenhower, Nixon. I mean, he just did the whole thing. The most amazing presence teaching the stuff that he felt so passionate about. And I could barely keep my eyes dry when he started talking about D-Day. And giving the accounts of these soldiers who were just, you know, they're, they're on the landing craft that are going, you know, up and down on the waves. And everybody's getting seasick. Officer and, you know, uh, uh, military lowlife. All of them. Everyone just vomiting on each other as they're waiting for the, 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 uh, the thing to go down. And then you just ran hard. You ran up the beach. That took Courage. And while awakening and doing the practices that lead us into that space don't require that we face real bullets like these young men did June 6th, 1944. It does require that we have the guts to face our lives as they are. And most of us want to run away. Most of us do not want that thing to go down. We are not interested. We are not interested in the potential rewards. If this metaphor isn't working for you, imagine when you first decided it was okay to fall in love. 
if you were one of those souls who decided no, 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 no. And then finally the person wore you down and then it's like, oh my God, I've been resisting this. When we put ourselves in positions of risk spiritually, the rewards are powerful. As long as we commit, as long as we stay focused, as long as we repeat as necessary, as long as we do no harm to self or other, it merely continues to enrich. So tonight as we're sitting, I would like you to do no harm. I would like you to face your life, no matter what, no matter what the implications are, just for 30 or so minutes, can you be right with your life, as it is, right with this body, as it is, right with this mind, as it is, right with this heart, as it is, right with this experience, as it is, without flinching. See what it does to you. I spent today uh, speaking to a group of uh, students at uh, University of San Francisco on Tibetan ethics. The, the course was in Tibetan Buddhist ethics, I should say. And I was brought in um, for some crazy reason. I don't know. I'm, I'm neither ethical nor Tibetan, so... Teasing, of course. But the, uh, the idea was to bring a, bring a, you know, a perspective into the class. And it was really neat being able to be with these, these students and, uh, and their professor... Um, we talked a little bit about my experience with <clears throat> the Tibetan tradition. Uh, limited as it was, it was still quite profound for me to sit with these, uh, you know, these monks and these teachers uh, just outside of Kathmandu. And I, I consider my time there with them to be just so valuable. Um, the professor and I, prior to going in and speaking with the students, talking about how religions really are about um, personal values, cultivating personal values, and at the same time bringing social responsibility into the mix. And I think when we start considering this, this these three words, do no harm, social responsibility, our being our brother's keeper, so to speak, to use a biblical phrase, becomes something that we have to face on some level. We cannot avoid the fact that all beings are involved in this mix. That it's not an us versus them. In fact, versus that contest never really shows up. In the truest sense of the Dharma, it's always about with that word with with each other with our highest sense of self with our teacher with our spiritual friends with the teaching as long as we can orient 
and kind of, if you will, anchor ourselves in that space of width. We're in really good shape. And when we do, we start recognizing that each and every event, each and every single event is an opportunity to awaken or deepen the awakening that we've already had. This is especially true when things aren't going the way we had planned. This is uh, true for me. Um, This last year, as several of you have known, has been an incredibly trying yet exciting time. Um, I've, uh, I haven't spoken about this to the Sangha publicly, but my wife and I have been separated for a few months now. And it's been a very, very interesting transition. And to give it some background, um, it's all been grounded in this practice. We were very, very careful to make sure that once we started kind of going into this space of harm, not so much, I mean, the relationship itself started to kind of struggle. We started to recognize that there was harm that we were causing because of each other's resistances to the way things were going. What really kind of lit everything up was when we started to worry about tension and resistance harming our two precious little girls. And so we thought to ourselves and had this really kind of beautiful series of dialogues. They were painful, but at the same time kind of beautiful. How can we do this with wisdom and compassion? How can we create space so that the two of us can either separate more completely from a place of consciousness or come back together into a place of even deeper consciousness. And so we're kind of working on that. I have no idea what's going to happen. Try not to attach to outcomes. Um, But I had a very, very uh, uh, (laughs) um, interesting moment a few weeks ago. I was speaking at a a conference. I think I shared this with some of you. Uh, um, This woman who is a, a, a therapist she was asking about how, well, Michael, you know, you've kind of come out of the monastery and so forth and decided to come back into the world. You got married, you had kids and everything. How's it going? (laughs) You know? And so what was very, very tricky was in that moment, do I lie? (laughs) Great. (laughs) Or do I level? And I leveled. And I said, well, to be honest with you, my wife and I kind of giggled a little bit and said, my wife and I actually, we've been separated for a bit of time. And she started to cry. You know? It's like, no, not you. You're not supposed to have that happen. And it's like, trust me. You know, it happens. Okay? It happens. And I think if we orient ourselves, once again, around deepening our consciousness, there's a way, potentially, I'm still trying to see if it'll work, of navigating this in a healthy way. It is heartbreaking. Every morning I wake up and I don't have those little girls crying or those little girls singing my praises. You know, I have to wait till 5.30 when I pick them up from daycare and then I get it. Either 
tears or, you know, daddy, daddy, daddy. And you know what? That ain't changing. And I feel very fortunate uh, that I am still married to someone who is able to really ground herself in that space. There's no animosity. There's love. But there's also the recognition that we should do no harm to self, to other, ever. And so it's kind of an interesting thing watching this happen. Applying this to kind of the teaching tonight, how is it that we could take something like this and turn it into a way of deepening our practice? Take your tragedy, whatever it might be. Do you cling? Because in the clinging is where we find our resistance. And in our resistance, we find the birth of war. At the birth of war, we begin to destroy. One of the things that uh, my wife and I have noticed is that it makes no sense to let ego corrupt this offering for either of us. So there's been kind of this just refusal to point fingers, to blame. And you can practice this on your own. Whatever it is that you face, whatever you're harboring right now, ill will, resentment, whatever. What happens when you just... Stop pointing the finger. When you stop pointing the finger, you take the other out of the situation, the versus out of the situation, and then it becomes a with. It becomes a dance. But it's a hell of a lot prettier than going to war. We don't have to get defensive we don't have to act judgmental we can let go and there's a beauty in that and there's a freeing in that that no matter what happens to the relationship everybody's better off So, one of the things that can be really powerful in a situation like the one I'm facing or or one that you might be facing is to make sure that you don't react to other people's lack of awareness. Make sure that someone else's unconsciousness doesn't tweak your own. That's when the universe is beckoning, saying, Come on, you ready to play? You ready to play? They have just thrown a major chunk of unconsciousness at your head. Ego. Okay? You going to fight back? Well, ego might have a series of stories as to why it should fight back. Okay? What's beyond ego can recognize what's being thrown as something that has no effect. Or it can say stop in really powerful ways that integrate wisdom and compassion without countering violence with violence necessarily. 
This allows us to be the awareness. And being the awareness is something typically we're just too petrified to do. Being the awareness of what is, is all we ever are. It's the one thing you can't escape, and yet, it's something we don't want to look at. Because if we do, suddenly, all the tools that ego thinks it has honed, sharpened, and oiled will be useless. And in a certain measure, ego's right. But in other ways, we find that before awakening, we've got an ego. After awakening, we have an ego. It's just that ego is now informed by something much bigger than itself. It can't get away with the same stuff. It knows that it's not in charge. It knows that it has been seen as nothing more than a stage play. And it's every actor, the lighting designer, the director, the writer, and there's somebody in the audience. And that entity in the audience is the big self. So it can go along being its small self on the stage all it wants, but it knows. Jigs up. Damn. But it still gets to play. It still gets to participate. And in relationship to others, it's very important that we recognize that no one is their unconsciousness. They might act unconsciously, but no one is limited to their unconsciousness. There's more to them. Being able to see that allows for us to see a great deal within ourselves and within them. It allows for patience to unfold. It allows for a certain tenderness. It allows for us to see and hear more fully. And in this way, we are a contributor to peace. We are an agent of depth, of depth. We become the smile. We become the universe seeing itself in a deeply participatory way. And in that space, we will do no harm. So, I think it's kind of key to know that that is out there. <laughs> this potential. Most egos look at this as potential out there, right? In fact, it's always already here. But we'll play along. Okay, so it's out there. How do you get it? Well, the traditions have been really, really cool about this. And this is one of the things that uh, I discussed very, very briefly with the professor today. Um, was this idea of, of um, guides. And how do we guide ourselves into this opening? Or, better said, how is it that we get out of the way so this opening can shoot through us? And the Zen tradition does it in, you know, they have what are called the, uh, you know, they've got the, the, the precepts, ten of them. You can call them commandments if you want. I'm fine with that, okay? But you've got these ten precepts 
that actually work to guide us. And I wanted to just kind of, I don't go in this direction very often, but I thought it might be a little bit helpful. If our theme kind of is do no harm, how is it that we can live a life that really does no harm? Number one, don't kill. Don't kill. Unless it's something that can be treated with antibiotics. Or unless it's something that sucks your blood like a mosquito. Or eats your food like vermin. I'm just saying, I make exceptions, okay? (laughs) I make exceptions. (laughs) The idea of not killing is to be used as a guide. It's to get you to think. I know that this practice, I, I keep yammering on about how, you know, stop your thinking, just be. Well, we're looking at this practice now from a different perspective. How is it that we can kind of foist practices onto being that will help it be? Being's already there, right? Yet it's covered up by all this other stuff. And so how can we get beyond that other stuff? Well, here, these seem to be a very useful set of, a set of tools. The not killing, let that be a guide to you. Don't kill. One of the things that uh, my wife and I were really clear about, we don't want to kill the relationship. When we saw that we were kind of struggling months and months ago, it was like, well, we don't want to kill this thing. Okay? So let's be really careful about it. Let's be really careful about how we do this. Let's be quite literally careful, full of care. And if you are full of care, killing is going to shift in meaning, purpose, and methodology. Don't think for a moment that I will not administer antibiotics to my daughter or someone I love if it's going to save their life. Done. Oh, but the bacteria might die. You're a Buddhist, dude. You shouldn't... Yeah. Sorry. Guilty. I had a question asked. Uh, so, what would a Buddhist do if, if he or she had the opportunity to kill Hitler? Would the Buddhist kill Hitler? They've taken this vow. You know, don't kill. Of course you would. Of course you would take that life. As long as it wasn't coming from a place of anger, hatred, greed, delusion. Now that's a scary line, isn't it? You could suddenly turn everything into a relative space. Using this as a guide, do not kill, I think is very, very important. Where do you draw the line? If a Buddhist could prevent... 12 million Europeans from being systematically annihilated by the machinery of Nazism? What would Buddha do? (laughs) Love you. As the earth is my witness, I have Hitler within. Next one is don't steal. Do not take what is not given. Sounds obvious enough. But stealing can take on many forms. Stealing can take on... I remember back in the, back when I was doing stand-up comedy, there were certain comedians who, when they would show up, um, we wouldn't do our A material. 
we take our A game out of the mix because we knew that they were going to take what we said and since they were higher up on the pecking order, they could take what we had written and they would be on Carson in a week or so and the joke's gone, you know. So that would be a version of stealing. Um, you know, larceny and theft are obvious. But what about manipulating something out of somebody? Here again, we're looking at a very interesting and fine line. What have you stolen? Or what do you contemplate taking from somebody that's not given to you freely? Next one is not abusing or misusing your sexuality. This doesn't mean don't have sex. That's actually one of the things I was so glad about when I found myself gravitating towards Soto Zen. It's like you don't have to be celibate. It's actually celebrate. That's what the... Okay, joke. Anyway. Um, <laughs> celibacy was an option, but not a requirement for, for uh, ordination. Misusing sexuality. That's fascinating. The misuse of sexuality is using it or another person as escape. Getting out of your hurt through pleasure. Right? Pleasure will always come from the external. Joy, on the other hand, comes from within. Sexuality that is a celebration of that joy, mutually dependent, co-arising, becomes a holy act. So before you think that, you know, in the Zen tradition at least, that sexuality is, is looked down upon or anything, hardly. It's just if you're going to have sex, make it count. Make it real. Make it powerful and precious all at once. Next one, no lying. This goes as much to what's within as to what's without. Lying to or towards somebody, lying to or towards what's deep within us. Great question. Are you telling the truth? Are you telling the truth to yourself? How close are you to truth? Are you hiding? What are you hiding from? And when we find that we are hiding, we are typically in an avoidance pattern. And when we're in avoidance patterns, we're actually dishonest. And we're causing harm. Just like when we steal. Just like when we misuse our sexuality. Just like when we kill. Next, not abusing intoxicants. Does this mean you can't have wine? A good scotch? A joint, if that's your pleasure? No, of course, you can. Are you abusing it? Or is your relationship to some type of intoxicant something that actually destroys you? There are certain people certain of uh, individuals who cannot just go have a beer who cannot just have one more cigarette and, and it's very important for them to recognize 
I can't do this. That's actually walking right into what's sacred. Those people actually have quite a head start on many of us who haven't had that situation brewing. No pun intended. Okay? They actually recognize, here's a limit for me. This destroys. This destroys. Now, we always joke in this particular sangha about one of my favorite um, meals on the planet, which is pizza and beer. And I, the minute it gets too serious and it gets too ethereal, I mean, it always comes back to, you know, remember what's, what's real and what's, what's, what keeps us human. For me, pizza and beer has always been that, but I know that that can be toxic to, to others, you know? The Dharma can be an intoxicant. People can be an intoxicant. Sex can be an intoxicant. Shopping can be an intoxicant. Are you clear about where your tendency to lean, where your addictions may be? Because when we look at intoxicants, all they do is numb us to what's real. And so having a very clear relationship with those intoxicants becomes really powerful. It keeps us from doing harm to self and to other. Another space that we can go into, the sixth precept, is not putting others down. Not making the world aware of somebody else's faults. This is another way of saying, stop pointing the finger. I share quite frequently the, my favorite, uh, it's, I don't know how to say it in Tagalog, but they, in the Philippines, the, the most beautiful saying is, when you point the finger at somebody, you've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. Start there. Start here. The minute we start pointing the finger at somebody else's miscues, their faults, where they're lacking, and so forth, what are we really doing? We're just diminishing ourselves. We're keeping us further away from presence, and as a result, we're doing harm. Next one is not praising self at the expense of others. Arrogance is something that all, all arrogance really does, and even in its most subtle forms. It might just be overt confidence or something like that, but all this really does is it reifies the ego, the sense that I am important or I am more important than they are. It creates an I or us versus them. It causes harm. And we can see this in really kind of playful ways. For instance, you know, at a college football game. Or we can see it in uh, presidential campaigns, political campaigns. Any way you cut it, we're diminishing consciousness at its deepest level. We're doing harm. And oftentimes we're letting unconsciousness meet with other unconsciousness, which then creates, instead of a with, it creates a versus, which creates a war. Next is, watch your greed. Don't let greed overtake you. 
Now, some of us are blessed with not a lot of greed. Others have total greed. I happen to be in the latter category. I wouldn't be sitting on this cushion if it weren't for greed. I wanted enlightenment. No matter what it took, I wanted enlightenment. The greed got transformed when I had great teachers beat it out of me. <laughs> you know? But greed has a way of seducing us. We get lost. We get into mine. Mine, mine, that space. I, me, mine. All that does, all greed will do, that grasping will fuel more in the way of uh, unconsciousness. Will fuel more pain and do harm. Next, and this one's tricky. Do not harbor ill will. You still hanging on to stories of being pissed at somebody? Your entire spiritual journey begins the moment you forgive. Said another way, until you forgive, just go somewhere else. Get salvation in some other way. Deep spiritual work starts at forgiveness. Because forgiveness is letting go. Forgive us our trespasses. Yeah? 23rd Psalm. Forgive those who have trespassed against us. Forgive, 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 forgive. Not holding on to old pain, old wrongs. This eradicates the victim tendency that many of us, many of us have. And lastly, do not diminish Buddha, Dharma, or Sangha. Translated, do not diminish your highest self. Do not diminish this teaching. Do not diminish the group. You want to take all those and simplify them? You've heard the three words several times tonight. Do no harm. Every single one of these things points in that direction. But it allows for us to begin to embody the realization, to begin to embody the experience. They're guides. They're like, you know the, uh, the word clue? It actually refers to a ball of string, is that, if I remember this correctly, that uh, people would do when they were going into caves. Because in ancient times, people would spelunk all the time, I guess. I don't know. But they would go in with these strings. You know, it's, they didn't have TV, you know. <laughs> Feel like going looking in a cave tonight? Yeah, sure. Listen, let's hit it. Okay. Get the clue. I haven't got a clue. The clue is, in fact, this ball of string that they would carry with them. And that's exactly what these things are. They're kind of like strings to help us navigate. Help us navigate these, these ten precepts. You can use all ten if you feel like it. 
Or you can just be really clear about not doing harm to self or other. And my sense is, as I've kind of been uh, trying to practice this, including in uh, you know, my current situation right now, it's a pretty mystical and magical gift that you can give when you can pay very, very close attention to this not doing harm. Thanks for listening. I've only got a couple of minutes because I babbled on so long. I apologize for that. But if anybody has any um, questions, I'd love to entertain them. Yes, young man. Each one of the precepts you reviewed had a kind of out. There is a circumstance that makes that less important. Can you talk for a moment about how you deal with these outs and put reasonability into them? Sure. So, like, for instance, don't steal unless you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the reason why we call them precepts instead of commandments is because rather than being etched in stone from divine fire, they were developed by practitioners who recognized the types of behaviors that tended to put us right in line with an embodied awakening. And what we'll find is that there are times... Again, to quote the Bible, there is a time to kill, right? There are times to steal. It's hard to make the case for, you know, there are times to abuse intoxicants or there are times to misuse your sexuality, but damn, that'd be kind of fun. What time is it? Yeah, I I don't know, Uh, but you you can look at each one of these. (laughs) You can look at each one of these as having... Um, having space around it as opposed to black and white the intention is fully to to help us walk into the gray and to do that mindfully and to think of the overriding issue of do no harm exactly, if we're in that space of do no harm and you can't live without doing harm if you think about it my, uh, my daughter, Maeve, was crestfallen over the fact that I stepped on a spider. I didn't even mean to, but I stepped, and she was like, oh, like I had just, I mean, for a little two-year-old, a little bodhisattva, you know, just absolutely just, you know, and just crying and crying. I'm so sorry. Let's go find another one. And then so pretty soon she kind of calmed down. But just this idea that, you know, I harmed now, does that mean I'm going to, you know, Buddhist hell realm or something like that? Well, in that moment, I sure did. I sure did. I did not mean to kill this. It's just being a spider, you know? Um, but damn it, that line of ants that's trying to get into my uh, living space, they're dead. <laughs> that mosquito, you going to suck my blood? I dare you. I dare you. You know? So, I mean, we can take it 
in a real fundamentalist extreme way, or we can kind of look at it in all sorts of different ways. I, by the way, am not that brutal towards ants or mosquitoes, but uh, yeah, if you're going to suck my blood, now my hands are at work. You know, that applies, that applies to vampires as well. Yeah. Question, Paul? Uh, Michael, where is uh, love uh, the, the big Christian precept in that uh, do no harm seems so passive? When we do no harm, Paul, the byproduct is an effulgent love. When we are doing no harm, we are embodying the Christ. For that not to be a precept seems uh, like somebody's dancing around the issue. Dancing around the issue of love. of love. Love is the felt sense of awakening to that truth beyond name and form. It doesn't need to be addressed. It's at the core. It's at the source of all of this. Doing no harm merely uncovers love, fully expressed in every single thing it is that we do. Um, having said all that, I'm with you. The thing about Christianity I've always loved so much is so juicy, you know. And for you know the the whole idea of turning the other cheek, offering the other cheek. You hit, you hit this, okay, you know, love thy neighbor, you know, that I, I just, I, I find that profound. Um, but rather than saying that they dance around it in the Buddhist precepts, I think what these Buddhist precepts are doing is they're guiding us right into the very core of love's jewel, where that light hits and then radiates. <coughs> Of course, I could be wrong. I love you. Thank you for coming tonight.